Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Beach Ratty. We often find ourselves reminiscing about the glory days of Ben Hogan and Arnold Palmer. I know I do. I reminisce about more than that from back then. Their style was unmatched with those alpaca wool cardigans. Well, Beach Ratty is bringing alpaca sweaters back to the game. Alpaca wool is a true natural performance fiber, it's a big misconception with wool, that evolved in multiple climates. From the coast to the mountains, it has inherent temperature-regulating characteristics. You know, that means it's warm when it's cold. It cools you down when it's hot. It's pretty cool stuff. Like Wool is maybe the most misunderstood fabric in the world. So head over to BeDratty.com. You can get yourself an alpaca wool sweater there. And receive 25% off with our exclusive discount code, TFE25. I think this is on like all the time. So if you need stuff, go to BeDratty.com, use TFE25, and you'll get 25% off. Now back to another edition of the Yoke with Doke. This is the second episode chronicling Tom's recent road trip across America, all over the place. He went basically from Michigan due west. So I guess he wasn't up in the Northeast. But a couple things we talk about of note, we talk about his new project upcoming at Dornick Hills, Perry Maxwell's home course, and then as well as the news of his potential renovation of Sandpiper, a well-known seaside public golf course in Santa Barbara. So those are two big projects that we talk about. And then we get to a slew of listener questions. So this this was a really good conversation. We're going to have more. Tom has his uh, audio equipment. We got it working this hour. So uh, enjoy this podcast. I hope everybody has a happy holidays. And thanks, as always, for listening and the support in 2020. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. We're back. All right. So, yeah, obviously... Huge news is uh, Dornick Hills, Perry Maxwell's home course, Ardmore, Oklahoma. You've been uh, hired to restore Dornick Hills. Tell us a little bit about that project. Well, I'm not sure it's huge news, but it's it's fun. Um, we're, uh, you know, huge, I, huge I news keep... for a Perry Maxwell fanatic like myself. Okay, okay, <laughs> so. So I keep saying, I keep saying, I'm not going to sign up any more consulting clients, you know, and I'm just passing all that on to my associates and to all these young guys that have worked for us because, you know, they need the work and I really don't. And, and for the most part, I do that when, you know, when somebody calls about something new, I, I just push it off. So I had two calls this spring for new stuff, new consulting stuff that I, that I couldn't say no to. Um, one was crooked stick, um, you know, which is Pete Dye's first real big project. And, you know, I, I spent a couple of days with Pete at crooked stick over the course of working for him over the years. And they, you know, once he had passed, they, 
you know, I knew, I knew several members and they reached out, you know, they, they were interviewing architects and would I want to interview for it? And while, you know, normally I'm saying no to that kind of stuff, it was like, yeah, that one's special. I should go talk to them. And, you know, that is like, I'm not sure there's a lot to do there. You know, I've sort of given them a preliminary report, but I'm not sure, you know, eventually I think they're going to have to rebuild their greens because of what's underneath them. But short of that, you know, we're not looking to do a lot of work there, but, you know, it's a special place because it was one of Mr. Dye's first projects and he was so personally involved. And the same goes for Dorna Kills. I mean, you know, I, I had said in an interview somewhere years ago, you know, I'd do that for free, help them restore the golf course. And, you know, I said that partly because I knew the club didn't have a lot of money. And, you know, I figured that would at least make them think about it. And, you know, it didn't go anywhere for a while, but, but this past year they were getting ready to, they're going to put in a new irrigation system. And one of the members said, Hey, you know, we should talk to this guy who said he might consider doing other stuff for free. Why don't we, why don't we give him a call? So they called me this spring and, and said, said, we'd, you know, we'd like to talk to you about that. And the club, the club doesn't really have the money to do it, but but there might be a couple other ways to get some funding for it. So we'd like to at least talk to you about how much it would cost and, you know, what we would have to raise in order to do it. So. And it just to be clear, when you say I, I do it for free, you know, I think there's, it's like, it still costs a lot of money, but you're, you're waiving your right. design fee. Yes. I'm not going to build it for them for free. <laughs> that, would, <laughs> that would be very generous and, and cost me half my net worth. <laughs> um, but, you know, I did, yes, I, I offered to put my own time into it for free. And, and so they, you know, so I, I went there in June, my first, my first trip post COVID. That was one of my first stops. Those were actually my first two crooked stick and then the Dornick Hills. And probably some of your listeners know the background, but most don't. Dornick Hills isn't just Perry Maxwell's first golf course. He and his wife bought that farm to build a golf course on. You know, before he started thinking he was going to be a golf course architect as a career, they, he just built that for his town that he lived in in Oklahoma to have a good golf course. And because his wife thought it would help him, you know, he had – he had uh, respiratory problems. That's one of the reasons they moved to Oklahoma. And she thought that golf would be better for his health long-term than tennis, which he had played. And, um, and when she, you know, when she recommended that they like get involved building a golf course, she handed him an article about the national golf links of America and in some, some national magazine. And, you know, so Maxwell went and, spend time with CB McDonald on Long Island to like learn about it. You know, he was Maxwell came into this as, you know, he was the local banker in Ardmore, Oklahoma. So, you know, he wasn't, you know, he had the kind of background that McDonald would pay him some attention and, you know, they spent a little time together in, in, uh, Long Island. And then a year or two later, Maxwell went overseas at McDonald's suggestion. And that's how he met Alistair McKenzie for the first time when he was visiting St. Andrews. McKenzie was there working on his map of the old course for the RNA. Um, and, you know, and then when Matt, and then when McKenzie came to the States three years after that, to, 
head to California and meet Robert Hunter. He stopped in Oklahoma on the way and, you know, made an agreement with Perry Maxwell to be one of his partners in America and, and, you know, consult on a couple of jobs that Maxwell already had going. Uh, Oklahoma City Country Club was one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, but Dorna Kills predates his involvement with McKenzie. You know, he bef- the first version of it only had four holes. And then he expanded it gradually to nine and then to 18 holes in the early 1920s. Um, and, you know, it was a very personal thing for him and a very uh, complicated piece of ground, you know, a very interesting piece of ground, not like your normal, you know, it's got a creek going through it that, that floods occasionally. It's got a couple of major rock outcroppings, including a, a, a sharp little cliff that runs along the back nine is in play on one of the most famous holes, certainly the most famous hole on the golf course. And one of the, one of the most um, unusual holes that I've ever seen the 16th, which they call the cliff hole. Um, but, you know, in the, in the late 1980s or early 1990s, I, I keep getting the date wrong, but somewhere in there 30 some years ago, the club, it fallen on hard times. You know, they were having trouble like, attracting members. They decided that one reason for that was people didn't like putting off greens. <laughs> that some of Maxwell's greens were just too severe. Sounds like so, Crystal Downs. Yeah, but Crystal Downs. Um, in terms of putting off greens. Yeah. I mean, you know, Maxwell built a lot of greens that you could putt off of. And if Prairie Dunes and Crystal Downs, that's an okay thing. But you know, the members of Dorna Kills had just, you know, there weren't too many people around connected with the golf course from way back at that point. And, you know, they had a consultant telling them, you really need to rebuild this and make it more fair for people. So they went in and changed, you know, they rebuilt all the greens, nine holes one year, and then nine holes a few years after, which is really strange because one nine doesn't even look like the other in terms of the greens construction. Uh, and neither of them look like Perry Maxwell's greens at all. And, you know, so that's what they need to fix. And, you know, that's, that's more complicated than redoing a bunch of bunkers. They, you know, for two reasons, one, you have to close the golf course and rebuild the greens and that costs a chunk of money. And two, they didn't really do a good job of recording what Maxwell's greens were before they dug them up. So, you know, we can talk about how we want to restore them exactly the way they were, but I don't have a map of exactly the way they, they were other than uh, Jeff Brower, who did the work on the back nine as one of his early projects sent me his plans for the golf course in the, in the, the, you know, the, the base map underneath is probably pretty close to the old greens in terms of how much fall there was on them. It may not be perfectly accurate, but it's the closest thing we've got. And it gives us, a, you know, at least gives us a good idea of, you know, the elevation of the green and how it tied in with everything around it, which would be really hard to do. You know, we've got good aerial photos of it, but looking at a black and white aerial photo doesn't tell you much about the contour of the greens. So what do you do 
went in that situation? What is it? Are you looking at unless you find something that would tell you more? How do you go about, you know, restoring a a green? Is it is it looking at other Maxwell greens and 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 trying to create a you know this is something that he might have done? Right. So that's the thing. I mean, I've I've always struggled with these kinds of projects because. You know, there's there's tons of architects, young architects going around the country saying they're a Donald Ross expert or a Thomas expert or a Maxwell expert or whatever, and that they could just, you know, they know what that guy did so they can build a set of Maxwell greens from scratch, even though the, the plans are long gone. And I'm just super skeptical of that. I mean, I you know, because... 50 years from now, some guy will say that about my golf courses. Oh yeah. I know how Tom built greens. I could go build a set of greens just like he would. And I try to do something different from one project to the next. And sometimes the idea for the green is Ryan Schneider's or Eric's or somebody else's. And, you know, we do everything kind of in the moment on the inspiration that we've got for that particular day. It's not on the plan. And, and I think that a lot of the old time architects worked exactly the same way, you know, and they, you know, they may have been there a lot or they may have relied on other people to build that for them. I mean, McKenzie certainly relied on Perry Maxwell to do that for him at a place like Crystal Downs where McKenzie was only there three days during construction and Maxwell was there for two, six month stints. You know, there's no question that Maxwell had more to do with building those greens than Mackenzie did. Um, but so I don't have a plan for Dorna Kills. And, you know, if the greens were somewhere close to what they were originally, I would say we'll leave well enough alone. You know, since they're totally changed and they don't look like Maxwell's at all, I'll use the best information I can find and I'll use you know, one of the people that's donating money to this thing. Um, when Maxwell built all his golf courses, he, he hired his two brothers-in-law to be his construction team. One of them, Dean Woods, was an engineer before he got into golf construction. So the Woods brothers were the ones who went around and, you know, they were at Crystal Downs all summer too. And they, they're the ones who went to Pine Valley and rebuilt greens at Pine Valley and Marion and some of these other places. And one of the main donors to this project is Dean Woods's grandson, you know, who grew up playing there, remembers the golf course from the 50s and 60s before it was changed. Now, anytime you're dealing with older guys and their memories, it, it's a little faulty. You know, I mean, I've used, I've done that on a lot of projects where, You'll talk to the old members and they'll be telling you dead on what you think one of the greens would look like. And then they'll start telling you about another hole. And I'm sitting there looking at a picture of it. It's like, it wasn't that way at all. <laughs> so, so you have to take all of that with a grain of salt. But in this case, that's some of the best information I have to go on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes you jog those guys' memories by just asking them questions about how it played. Like, you know, where could you not miss the green? You know, at Raw Melbourne, the old club champion and historian told me on the East course, there was a green. He used to try to make sure to miss it over the back instead of in front. And I was like, okay, so that part of the green must've 
must have sloped off the back. That's why he was doing that. Even though he couldn't, you know, he hadn't ever had a transit on the green to measure it. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. So so then it, it you know, be working with him and, and then, you know, figuring out obviously some of this stuff going on and then making it feel like a cohesive set, especially if if the back nine where you have the, you know, some semblance of plans comes out in a, you know, certain style, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And the other thing, you know, you, you, you probably couldn't, if we had plans for all the 18 greens, the way they were originally, you probably couldn't build them all, all back to exactly like that because people would put off them all day again, you know, near as I can tell from the plans for the back nine, a couple of the greens had like seven feet of fall from oh, back God. to front. Yeah. The, the, you know, the, well, they're built into, you know, the, I mean, it's your typical American country club from the setting, the, the, the clubhouse sits up on a ridge, you know, facing the valley where the stream goes through. And then the, the cliff is actually on the far side, looking back at the golf course. So, you know, you're playing pretty steeply back uphill on both the ninth and 18th holes to get back to the clubhouse. And he just built greens into that steep slope so that you could see the, see the surface of the green. And I'm sure they were like five or 6%, just like. So the routing in a way is kind of similar to like Southern Hills where he's got the clubhouse up top and the course plays out and back up and out and back up. Let's see. I feel like he did that routing style a lot, obviously. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I haven't seen like nearly every Maxwell course. I've only seen a handful of them. And, you know, some people would say, were well, you really the best guy to do this? And, you know, certainly the price is right <laughs> for them. But, you know, I'm I'm the best guy. I'm the best guy only in the sense that I'm not. I'm not trying to make my reputation off this and I'm not. You know, I'm not going to go in there and posture and pretend to be Maxwell. I'm just going to try to do the best that we possibly can with the best shapers going and the experience that we have and some good people advising. And, you know, I'm confident that'll work out pretty well. How does obviously like Prairie Dunes is, you know, a sand based site, but how does it compare in terms of properties to the, the, the Maxwell's that you've seen? I'm assuming you've seen old town and, and uh, Prairie Dunes, Southern Hills. Uh, Yes. A few. And, you know, it's funny that that quite a few of his, you know, even the little courses of his that I've seen in Oklahoma and Kansas, a lot of them are similar. They have a lot of them have a creek going through them. And, you know, anytime you got a creek, you got two, you got hills on either side kind of feeding the creek. And, you know, he started on one side, he used the creek in play on as many holes as he could figure out how to do it. And then everything else kind of bouncing off the hills on either side to get to 18 holes. Um, so, you know, a similar routing process, probably, um, you know, Chris Clauser, who wrote the biography of Maxwell tried to identify certain like template kinds of holes that he used. And certainly at Dornick Hills, because he just been to the national golf links of America and spent a lot of time with McDonald, there are at least a few things that Dorna kills you could say are kind of template holes or at least inspired by something that he saw at the national, but there's not like a Redan hole and an Alps hole 
you know, not not the templates yeah. to that degree, but there are certain pieces that are kind of like, yeah, you know, I can see a resemblance there. And that'll be a exciting project to uh, to watch. Um, Micah Puchel, who he's a uh, Santa Barbara resident, so you could guess what his uh, his questions about. You know, your your Instagram posts about Sandpiper, and uh, you know, I I know you you said to me that there wasn't, you know, they were just talking, but curious about that that story. If you got anything you can share on it, so I I saw Sandpiper a couple of times, like back in the eighties, and um, and I I think I went over there once while we were working on the Valley Club, but uh, Sandpiper got bought up like. 12 or 14 years ago now by Ty Warner, who also owns Montecito Country Club and a couple of the the really high-end hotels. Is that the Beanie Baby guy? Yes, he is. Ty <laughs> Warner made, you know, that was a private company. So he made all the profits from that for himself, which he did really well by. Now he owns all the luxury properties in Santa Barbara as a result it's of- It's like one Beanie of the Baby. most expensive places to buy property too. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, you know, years ago, I was one of many architects that they had come in and like spend a couple of days and draw a potential plan for redesigning Sandpiper. And, and it, it was like one of the most frustrating routing exercises I've ever tried to do. I mean, you know, you look at it and there's like, you know, there's, there's about the same amount of coastal frontage on that course as there is at Pacific Dunes, you know, enough for two really long holes along the course and a par three and a little more, there might be a little more coastal frontage. And in one place it drops right down to beach level on the 11th. And then it comes right back up on the 12th. And most of it's up on a cliff, a hundred feet high, just like Pacific Dunes. But the contour up on top is entirely different. And you don't, you know, you don't, you're not kind of leaning over the edge of the cliff looking out all the time. Well, you know, one of the holes you're playing along the cliff, but it, everything tilts back inland from the cliff. So you don't really see, you're not really seeing the ocean at all while you're playing the hole. And, you, you know, so for, for your, your typical amateur golfer, like the guy who wrote your, you, you, the note, or even for an architect, you, you look at that and you think, wow, somebody should have done a lot better with that routing. But when you try to, you know, just because you think there ought to be a better solution doesn't mean you can make that fit on the map. And this is one of those ones that I just was like, you know, I'm not sure there is a much better solution for this. There are, there are two or three things out there that they're kind of locked into for environmental reasons. Like, you know, down by where the 11th green and 12th T are now, they wouldn't be allowed. If, if you ask for permits today, they wouldn't be allowed to build a green and T down there. So those got to stay the way they are. Um, that pond on the 18th hole, you know, I'm going to eliminate the par three 18th hole back to the clubhouse playing over a little man-made pond, but the pond has to stay because of some endangered frog that might or might not live around it. Um, but I think we can leave it and just, you know, not have it and play on the golf course and kind of take it out visually when you're looking at the thing. You know, we, we can we can reduce the dam that makes it look so bad from the clubhouse. And then uh, there's 
there's some holes on the other side, the ones in the trees on the front nine that the, the trees are like a monarch butterfly habitat. So they don't want us to change very much in there at all. Uh, so, you know, once you're left with three pieces that you have to keep that aren't all right together, that really limits how many things you can change. Um, and, you know, if it's, you know, if you got to connect back into the, the existing routing here and here and here and here, there's only so many things you can do. And, you know, I put together a plan in like 2009 and gave it to them and didn't hear from them again from, for years. And I just thought, well, I don't know what's happening. That's okay. You know, it was, that was a tough thing to figure out anyway. And then maybe four or five years ago, they asked, they, they asked us to look at it again for a day or two while we were, while we were working at the Valley club. But again, nothing more from that. And then in the this spring, I got a message on my phone, like, Hey, you know, we've been looking at all these plans and yours is really the most sensible in terms of we could, we think we could get the permits to build this. And it, you know, it changes the golf course, but it still uses all the parts we have to use. So we'd like to sign you up. And I was like, is this a lost message on my phone? When is this from, you know, cause the guys called me in 2020 and I said, can you send me the map of the plan that you're talking about? And I drew it in 2009. <laughs> I mean, that was yeah, a long time. Years, so awesome. uh, but you know, in, in April of 2020, I was really glad to have somebody call up and want to sign me up for a new job that, you know, that the rest of the world had completely shut down. And all of a sudden it's like, yeah, can we, can we do this? So, so I made my first visit out there this, just this last month to kind of walk through the routing we'd done, still try to figure out if there isn't a better way to do this one corner that I've been beating my head against the wall for years trying to figure out. Um, but then also talk about all the logistics of what, what's going to have to happen. I mean, it'll, it'll be at least a couple of years of dealing with the California coastal Com commission to get permits for whatever we do. Um, and, you know, trying to figure out what their hot buttons are and, you know, so we can work around those and do something sooner instead of later. How often do you get just calls from things that you sent, you know, a decade ago or five years ago? Does that happen a lot? No, almost never. You know, occasionally something, you know, there are certain pieces of land that people have been talking about for you. Wouldn't it be great to build a golf course there? And, you know, well, frankly, I knew when I, you know, when I, when I did getting to 18, I put those, those dead projects in the back and I put a handful of maps in there and I knew I'd get a call about at least one of them. Like, Hey, maybe we could do that after all. Uh, so I've already had like one call about one of those, but not the one that I really, really want to do. <laughs> um, you know, you never know. As long as there's a piece of ground sitting there and an idea, somebody might make it happen someday. And certainly some of the projects that I've done are things that, you know, well, you know, Aaron Hills, which is in the back of the book too, obviously they had somebody else do the thing after, you know, somebody I knew kind of found that ground and thought it would be a good place to build a golf course. And, you know, I, I had two different clients that were going to pay me to build that golf course years before Herdson and Fry got their client mm -hmm. who actually did it. That's yeah. I, I imagine your business has a lot of 
you know, people that are thinking about building a course, but then never do, or it happens 10 years after they first think about it or three owners later. Right. Correct. And you know, that's, I mean, the hardest thing about trying to be a golf course architect and, you know, being a small business golf course architect is that you've got those, those delays built into your livelihood. You know, you sign up, okay, I'm going to design this course for Aaron Hills and they'll pay me $50,000 up front. And then that might be it. I might, you know, I might go on for two or three years thinking that's going to happen and it never does. And I don't get paid anymore. You know, and you're lucky now if you can even get the $50,000 out front of, out of them up front. You know, these days, everything's so iffy. Even my best clients don't want to pay a deposit. They just want me to like take the risk with them until they're ready to build something. Um, here's a question from Patty. Uh, can Tom go into... Sim, into the similarities in design philosophy between the 6th at PGA West Stadium and the 16th at Cypress Point and how the surrounding beauty or lack thereof can affect how a hole is judged and remembered. Yes, I can. Because, you know, when Mr. Dye had me do the plan for the stadium course at PGA West, he gave me, you know, he, he sat me down for like a day and a half and gave me all his boilerplate things that he wanted to include in the golf course. You know, one of them was to make the four par threes very different length and have one of them be really short, which is now 17, length but they, you know, <laughs> lengthen the really short one to like 180 or something now <laughs> and have, and have one of the par threes be really long. But he didn't say very much else about that hole or what to do with it. And, you know, when I was playing around on paper, trying to just draw something to have a first plan of the golf course, you know, I thought, well, the best part three hole that's 230 is 16 at Cypress Point. So I'll draw a version of that. So I just drew like, you know, a 230-yard direct carry over the water or some fairway short and left that you could play to if you didn't want to go for that. Um, obviously it's in Palm Springs and, you know, you're not, you know, you're not 50 feet above the Pacific ocean that takes away quite a bit of the drama, uh, and all the naturalness of it, but, you know, in plan, it's not a way different hole. And yet, because it looks man-made people's attitude toward it is a lot different. I think, you know, you don't at Cypress point, you know, if you're not strong enough or or confident enough to try to hit driver onto the green, you know, you don't blame the architect for that. You think, well, shit, he put the green on the point there just like everybody would. And I can't go for that today, but you don't, you know, but at PGA West, you think, why'd they build a hole that I have to lay up on? <laughs> I don't want to lay up. I want to be able to go I, for the green. I kind of think everybody so, should lay up yeah. on the Cypress point hole. <laughs> You probably should, although I played Cypress Point just like two, three weeks ago and, and uh, had a really good caddy, a, a guy who's a great amateur player in Northern California. And I was hitting the ball all right. When we got to 16, he just, he just, he, he said, you know, I don't, I think you probably couldn't hit past the green into those back bunkers with driver. You know, basically he was trying to tell me, you know, without, he's just like hit driver. 
don't think you're going to get forward there. Just hit driver without saying anything negative great, to me great, at all. Great, com I great comment, you know. It was. And I hit driver just as good as I could right in the middle of the green and two putted to win our match. <laughs> That's the the two times I played there. The first time I I almost dunked it on the fly, and then and I kind of walked off the green like oh, I don't know why everybody thinks it's so hard. And then the next time I rinsed two in a row, so I got the I got the, the you know both both sides of the coin. Well, I was playing with three guys who are all better golfers than me, and I was the only oh, one to hit so the green. Hard. Um, it's it, yeah, it's not. It's one thing to you know. Can you can you reach it? Yes. Can you do it when you want to? Not so easy. And you know, I've been everywhere on that. I've I've played there probably ten or twelve times in my life, including when I was fifteen years old was the first time. And and I could safely say I've been everywhere on that hole. I've been in the ocean, right? I've been, you know, I've laid up and then shanked it into the water, right? That's why I don't lay up anymore if I can help it. Because last time I laid up, I shanked the second <laughs> shot into the water. Anyway, <laughs> but, but you know, one of the very first times I played it when I was a kid, I hit it. I pulled it left, and I wound up on the beach down there. You know, when the tide's out, the the there is a beach over there in front of Seventeen T. And there were, at least in the old days, there were steps down to it. So I played a shot, you know, I pulled it left and hit a shot off the beach back up on the green and That's made four. four. Was there anything that just jog, like when you played for this most recent time that you marveled at or something stood out that hadn't stood out before? Not really. I mean, I was playing with the green chairman. So he, you know, he was asking a bunch of questions along the way about, you know, some of the little things, tweaks that they've either done or they're thinking about doing just to get my input on them, which for a round of golf at Cypress Point, I'm happy to give some free advice. <laughs> um, and so I wasn't really just like free thinking about it myself. You know, we had a, you know, I played with Eric too and, and another friend of mine who's a member of San Francisco Golf Club. So you know, it was kind of a really nice social round of golf and I wasn't trying to analyze the golf course architecture so much, but I do, you know, I've seen that place for 45 years. I, I know it pretty well. So a couple, you know, like a couple of the things I pointed out to the green chairman are things that I'd been seeing for like 20 years, you know, wondering if they would ever do anything about it, but mostly it's cutting down a tree or two that's, you know, they, they're not allowed to cut down a Monterey Cypress tree, mm -hmm. period. You know, so like people that talk about 17 and 18 and, oh, you know, they should cut down those trees and make the holes better. It's like those trees aren't coming down until yeah. they fall down. Yeah. Um, all right. This question, I forgot to write down his name. Sorry to whoever asked this. And I don't know. This is a hypothetical. And I don't know if you would do this, but if you could redo any hole at Pacific Dunes, what would it be and why? Yeah. I wouldn't be touching that place with a hundred foot pole. <laughs> um, you know, like, so, you know, we're coming up on 20 years since we built Pacific Dunes and, you know, I'm just not the kind of person who second guesses the design unless there's something not working. And I'm pleased to say that the only problem Pacific Dunes has had in the last 20 years is sand blowing out of the bunkers. And in a few places we, we took a big bunker that the sand just, 
ravaged on a every bait every year basis and broke it up into two or three smaller bunkers to kind of try to reduce that problem some but the golf holes i love the golf holes you know there's a there's a couple of holes there where i kind of really held strong through that process of you know let's not do too much here and let's not just jazz this hole up like everything else you know, you kind of need a break somewhere in there instead of making every hole the best hole on the golf course. And I, but I wouldn't change that after 20 years. I still think that was an important part of the design, even though most people don't, you know, when you, when, when most people look at the design, they're just looking at it one hole at a time and they're not thinking about the whole thing together so much. You know, I was thinking about that a lot while we were building that golf course. And I did make some decisions because of that, that if you're just looking at a particular hole, you would suggest, you might suggest something that was more dramatic. And I just think, no, I didn't, you know, that wasn't the time to do yeah. that. That that makes sense. You know, a lot of, a lot of the courses have gotten worse from tinkering too, you know? Absolutely. You know, that's the, you know, why I do all this consulting at everybody else's old golf courses is because people keep tinkering around and messing up golf courses. And, you know, I'm a big believer that, you know, get it right the first time and then don't mess with it after that, you know, instead of always thinking, you know, the Tom Fazio approaches, you could always improve something and make it better. And yes, you could, but you could always, you could also always tinker with something and make it worse. And that's really easy to do on a great golf course. All right. This is from uh, our friend Crystal in uh, France. Our friend um, Crystal. I'm interested in finding out what Tom thinks of the difference of working with women compared to men shapers. Apart from just women's awareness of distance discrepancies and tees. She re- remembers vividly when Angela Moser worked at their course and how precise and dedicated she was on her various tasks. She says she remembers every time she tees off on the seventh tee. Well, it's an interesting question because Angela would be one of the only women shapers that you could name. <laughs> so I've never really thought of, of it as being, you know, all the shapers that I deal with are different people. They, you know, they have slightly different personalities and they come to the game with different backgrounds. You know, some of them aren't very good golfers. Some of them are really good golfers. So, you know, I never, you know, Angela's different too, but I never really assigned it all to her gender. Um, You know, it's just, I think of her, we all think of her as one of the guys, no slight intended. And I think she appreciates that. But, you know, I mean, for Angela, who is a good junior player and is a pretty good golfer to this day and plays from the men's tees, or for Crystal, who is a great golfer and plays from the men's tees all the time, or for Alice Dye, who is a great golfer and played from the men's tees most of the time, even till she was 65 or 70 years old, you know, they're women, but they don't play golf like the average woman at all, you know they may be more tuned into the average woman is not like them and that you have to think about how to accommodate them. But when they see a golf hole, they, the, the first thing they're visualizing is the same shots that I do because they all hit the driver as far as I do. Yeah. 
Um, it, it, how does personality? I'm interested with you know all your experience with personalities. Do you notice things with like type A or type B personalities, like difference in in how they do the work or how how the work comes out, or if there's you know more? I don't know. I don't want to get you in trouble with anybody either. Well, to me, there's only to me there's only one crucial quality for a shaper. And that's being able to accept it when I don't like something, you know, I'll let them be creative and try to do their own thing sometimes, but only if they're willing to accept that if I don't like it, it's gone. And you know, we don't, we're not going to argue about that. We're just going to do something different. I'll tell them why I don't like it, but you know, that's, I mean, Golf is a business of big egos. Architects have big egos too. So I'm not saying it's just a one-way street, but at the end of the day, it's my job to decide what's out there. And if somebody builds something that's cool, but I just don't think it fits the golf course that we're trying to build or the, or the client, or it doesn't fit into the ground that's there, you know, quite often I'll say, now we got to do something different. And sometimes it's only a little tweak and sometimes it's like knock it down and start over. But, you know, that's the three guys that work for me full time. We've been doing that for 20 years so that, you know, they, they can more anticipate something, you know, they're not going to build something if they know I'm going to hate it. And they've got at least some sense of what that is. You know, that doesn't mean they're building the same thing all the time, but you know, they've, they've learned from previous conversations, you know, of various things that I don't like, or that probably we're not going to do. Um, you know, so it's easier to have that relationship with them than it is with somebody new or somebody who's just, who's, you know, really getting their first chance to shape and wants to show you how great they are, you know, and that's fine. We like having new people on projects too, because they do add new things but they just have to accept that at the end of the day, you know, I'm the one who has to be the most happy with it. They don't necessarily have to. Is that, is that one of the hardest things for young, you know, whether they're shapers or architects is, is, is almost the restraint of not having to, you know, everything be the coolest, coolest green, you know, like all, yes. you know, like taking oh. everything to the, you know, max. Yes. I mean, I, you know, I could, I, w I won't name them, but I can think of a couple of jobs that we've done that, um, you know, it's 18 wild greens and it's kind of like, there were so many talented people on the job that was like, you know, oh, look at the cool green he built for number six. I'm going to build an even crazier green for number seven. And you don't want to do that for 18 holes, you know, on something like the Mulligan course that worked great. You know, I, I, I encouraged those guys to make it wild and do all the things that we couldn't do on a normal 18 hole golf course. But, you know, on most golf courses, you don't want to, you know, turn the dial up to 11. You have to, you have to understand that it all fits together and how to modulate that some. And, and that's what, young people tend to lose sight of because they haven't done it much before. It's just like you get caught up in, 
there's two things happen. One, you get caught up and excited in what you're doing, which is a good thing. But you also, you know, a construction project is like six months of shaping. And if you're, if, you know, if it's one of your first jobs, you're probably out there nearly every day and you are not going around to other golf courses and reminding yourself that they are not like that, that the, the, the Cypress Point doesn't have 18 greens each wilder than the last one. And you don't really need to do that. And that's what, you know, most young people just need to be reminded, hey, you don't need to do that. You know, we don't have to go that far. That's really cool, but don't make the next one even wilder. Yeah, because sometimes the the coolest greens I find at courses are the ones that are really, you know, subdued except for one little tiny small feature. And that, that, that green stands out as much as the wild ones because it's different, right? Yep. Yeah, I mean, that the mulligan course at Ballyneal has like maybe the four or five wildest greens that we've ever built. And yeah, like one of my favorites there is the the one out at the far end, the third, which is absolutely just looks about as flat as it could be, just like a little gentle saucer shape, but it's kind of mostly tilting away from you too. So it's not an easy green to hit and hold. And it's just like, that's the perfect place for something like that just before you get to all the really wild. Hey, we got a question from Patrick Jordan. I remember your Instagram post about it. Tell us a little bit about Frederick Peak and Valentine. Oh, yeah. So I, you know, one of my first stops on the road trip was going through Nebraska and seeing, you know, I'd been to Valentine, Nebraska like 20 years ago, 18 or 20 years ago to interview for the job that is ultimately the golf course that Gil Hans has been building out there, the Prairie Club. The Cap Rock, now, yeah. The, the course next, yeah, Cap Rock, the course next to the Prairie Club. You know, and that was before the Prairie Club existed too. And then since then, you know, I've been back to Sand Hills three or four times and I've been, you know, I built the course at Dismal River, but between Ballyneal and Sand Hills and Dismal River, I never like had time or energy to get in the car and go an hour, hour and a half further north to see what happened with the Prairie Club, which, you know, two, two of the guys that used to work with me shaped the dunes course at the Prairie Club for Tom Lehman. Um, and I'd never, so I'd never seen either of those courses and I'd never, and I knew Gil was building the course on the land that I'd looked at. So I was curious to see that. And then I also knew, I remembered I played golf in the opening for Pacific dunes. I played golf with, uh, a young Australian guy named Josh Taylor who worked for Lehman for a while. He's out of the business now, but, but I remember that Lehman's guys, when they were working on the Prairie club, got excited about doing a course for the town, you know, replacing the town Muni with a new golf course. And they built nine holes of it or actually 10 holes of it. Um, and they've got a plan to do the others someday, but I don't know when they'll get around to it. But, but so I made a point of stopping in and seeing that instead of just calling it a day with the Prairie club and, and what a cool little place, you know, it's like a, it's like, I think it was $21 for nine holes and 23 for 18. If you want to go back around, <laughs> which I thought was the perfect pricing scheme yeah. and you know, a little tiny modest clubhouse and the first couple of holes are on really flat ground and you, you know, you might 
if I'd just driven in and not known anything about it, I might not have gone out because the, the first things that you could see were not that inspiring. And I had no idea, you know, after the, I think it's the fourth hole that's kind of up with a great view of the valley. And then you drop down into the valley for the next two or three holes. And it's really up and down from there back in. Um, but some really dramatic stuff, you know, mixed in with a couple of pretty flat holes. So it, on balance, it's not really hard, but there's a couple of spectacular that's, that's holes. That's cool. I, I love just making random pit stops at places you think might be cool. I was, uh, I was driving, I drove from Prairie Dunes up to Wild Horse and there was a course I was on a real tight schedule. There was a course I did. I got out and walked around it. I got to find out more info about it. But it was built in like 1924 or five. And I I was driving by it and I just saw it, out of, you know, while I'm driving by. And I was like, whoa, that looks really good. <laughs> and I, I but it's a it's, so it's, what a, was it's that? a nine hole course. <laughs> I, I can't remember the name. I can't remember. I got to find it in the text. I was on the oh, phone. God. I was literally on the phone with somebody and I had them looking up information about okay. it. Um, but it's, it's, you know, that's, that's how I, that's how I f- discovered my first Langford course, Harrison Hills. Tom Mead and I were driving to um, Evansville when we were, talking about the job at quail crossing with the client and for some reason we drove through via purdue and so we drove through attica indiana and we drove you know the, the highway goes right past a fence that the like the ninth holes on the other side of the fence and you know we were driving by and i i looked to the side and i saw all these mounds and you know where the bunkering with huge mounds and i i was like stop the car <laughs> we're going to have a walk around that whatever the hell it is <laughs> so neat it's that place is awesome i i mean i that is the, some of those holes on that course are just incredible um the place i just found the text message because i sent the guy that i was talking to on the phone some pictures and it's got the water tower and one of the pictures ellsworth ellsworth kansas it is ellsworth country club or ellsworth golf club i i okay. i was looking at it and i thought you know given i was you know where i was there's a good chance it was perry maxwell i didn't have enough time to stop and and play it but it was really lay of the land yeah no i don't think that i don't think that is perry maxwell because i i've been reading through i've been trying to figure out which of the other little maxwell courses i should go see so i've been I've been kind of skimming Chris Clauser's book, trying to figure out what sounds like a a more likely target of something to go see. And I, I don't remember that. I, I remember the name Ellsworth, Kansas. I might've driven by there, but I don't, I, I didn't yeah, see the golf course, but I don't. Somebody listening probably will know who decided, it, but it was, it was a twenties or thirties golf course. Cause, it, um, yeah, okay. but yeah. So, that's uh, on the road uh stops are are always uh, awesome um so Jeff Mitzak, is there a course whose stature has been outrageously helped by its neighbors and a course that has unfortunately been overshadowed by its neighbors hmm outrageously helped by its neighbors i you know. 
I mean, the golf season, the golf scene in Pinehurst has really been changing a lot in the last few years. But before that, I would say that a bunch of the golf courses around Pinehurst were overrated on the basis of being next to Pinehurst number two. You know, I, I won't name any names, but, you know, just the whole region, the idea that all the other golf courses were anywhere near as good or like that, you know, that you were going to go there for five days and play five different cool courses. That was not remotely true. It, it might be true now, you know, the, the, the place, you know, mid pines and pine needles and those places have really upped their game and tobacco road came in, came in the mix. And now Pinehurst is like, you know, taking the competition seriously and starting working on all their golf courses too. So they won't, you know, so they won't just be the hotel for people and have them go be playing everybody else. I think stream song probably uh, was part of that too, with, you know, having competition in the Southeast with, you know, yes, I'm sure that it, I'm sure that it was competition does make people take stock of what's going on. And, you know, if, if play drops or people are starting to complain about other things, you know, it, yeah, it's, they're, they're quicker to see the change in that, in that case. Um, on the other side of the coin, I mean, there's, there's still a bunch of golf courses in Westchester County, New York, and, and on Long Island and in Philadelphia that people don't know about because Marion and, you know, Wingfoot take up all, get all the attention and that's where they host the tournaments and, you know, and, you know, for years, places like Fenway or Rolling Green or those kind of places were just ignored. And they were ignored because, because they were there, you know, you know, when, when Gil Hans and I were working on Stonewall, the original golf course, we used to go, we used to work weekends and then like Tuesdays or when I think it was Tuesdays, we'd take the afternoon off and go play a different course in Philadelphia. And we were, you know, we couldn't, we didn't run out of good golf courses to go see. Every time we go, it'd be like manufacturers. Never heard anything about it. Wow, what a great golf course. Just, you know, we must have done like 10 like that. And, you know, and Gil, you know, most of them were Flynn golf courses because he built so many around Philadelphia. And Gil at the time, he lives in Philly now, but he, you know, he, he was living in Colorado back then and he thought Cherry Hills was a great golf course. And whatever Flynn course we walk off in Philadelphia, I'd look at him and go, so that's better than Cherry Hills, isn't it? <laughs> you know, just week after week, which is, I shouldn't say because we do some consulting at Cherry Hills now, but you know, just a ton of golf courses, you know, and if you took any one of them and helicoptered them to Denver, Even Chicago. Or, I say this about Chicago all the Chicago. time. It's like manufacturers would, it would be like one of the five best courses in Chicago and nobody even talks about it in Philly. Right. Because there's a lot of good land in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not many pieces of land there's like none. that in Chicago. <laughs> no. Well, Shore Acres. It's really maybe. flat outside but, of the ravines yeah. at Shore Acres. It's like the flattest land That's ever true. except for those ravines. That's true. Um, yeah, there's just a lot, you know, and that's why, you know, that's why golf courses tend to be built in clusters like that where there's great land. Well, yeah. Why don't we keep building golf courses? Why don't we build more courses in the sand hills? Why don't we build more courses in Monterey and so forth and so on? And, you know, it's inevitable that some of those are going to get overshadowed by the big 
by the big brother that hosts the yeah. big tournament. It's uh, I feel like some the pendulum's turn a little bit. People are liking Quirk a little bit more, and I think obviously like social media helps some of those courses that are overshadowed a bit uh, now. Absolutely. Um, a, Jim Huntoon, superintendent, asked a question: Any superintendents that have made an impression on him over the years? Superintendents that made yeah. an impression on me? Oh, a ton. Um, you know, the, the, the very first superintendent I got to know, well, I didn't like, I didn't work on the maintenance crew of my, the Muni that I grew up playing. So I didn't really know that much about, uh, being a golf course superintendent or what it entailed until I started working in the business. Um, you know, at Long Cove, when, when I was working on the construction there for Mr. Die, um, Bobby Weed, architect now, was the super was the growing superintendent for Long Cove. So I got to know him a little bit and see that from his perspective. And, you know, and listen to Mr. Dye talk about how important the superintendent was to the project and how it drove him crazy that good superintendents didn't want to stay being a superintendent. You know, he hoped they'd stay and take care of the golf course forever. And they wanted to go to another construction site and, you know, have all the fun of building something from scratch again. Um, and then when I went overseas the next summer, you know, I had an introduction to the greenkeeper for the old course of St. Andrews, Walter Woods, who was like the godfather of golf course superintendents in the UK. I mean, just totally respected by everyone over there. And of course, you know, knowing him fairly well, cause I got to, you know, originally a friend of mine had introduced me and we'd agreed that I would work on the maintenance crew when I, when I moved over there for a couple months. And when I got there, Walter said, you know, I can't do it because we're in a recession and, you know, it's a town golf course. And if I hire anybody outside of town, they'll hang me. So, so I've talked to the caddy master and you can caddy, you know, just, just let the guys that are going to make a living and that need to make a living and have two loops a day, get out before you. And he said, besides that, you're welcome to hang around with me as much as you want and ask questions. And that was like, it couldn't have been a better summer of doing that. And, you know, because, you know, Walter used to do, used to do his work in the morning and the evening. The, the old course was so busy then people would go out before the first tea time of the day and pay when the, when the Rangers showed up. And it, I mean, they were, they were playing 70,000 rounds a year on the old course because it was only like 20 bucks or 25 bucks back then. And so he was, you know, he didn't have enough time to work on it very hard. You know, it's like they had to, they had to do two shifts. They had to kind of do a cleanup pass behind the last golfers at the end of the day so that they could get a head start on the next morning. Otherwise they'd never be able to maintain it. Um, but just to see him, uh, you know, he didn't like, well, they were still on a pretty tight maintenance budget back then, but he didn't like buying chemical fertilizers very much at all. He would send the crew to gather kelp off the rocks in the Harbor behind the clubhouse at low tide bring it, you know, take a wagon and bring it back to the maintenance yard and mix it with sand, like compost it and make his own organic fertilizer for nothing. Unbelievable. 
Um, you know, I never heard about anybody, you know, nobody used the word sustainable to describe any of that, but that's what that was just way before the time. It was like practical. This is what we got to do to make it work on a budget. It's here. been a good episode for, uh, golf, uh, golf people that with the last name woods between the uh the dornick hills yes <laughs> yes it is a good name it's it's been a good name for yeah, golf in general seriously. as a matter of fact you've been talking about the most famous one uh, um, all right but you know in addition to walter um you know i mean we've worked with some incredible superintendents both of the clubs we consult at and then you know people like Ken Nice and Bandon and just, you know, I'm going to, if I start naming people, I'm going to run out of time, but I've gotten to work with a ton of very good golf course superintendents. And in fact, it's a great, it's a great circle to be in because they recommend superintendents for our other golf courses. I mean, so, you know, so, um, you know, we, we wound up with uh, CJ Kreuscher to help build Terra Edy on Ken Nice's recommendation. And then when CJ moved to, um, moved over to the construction side to go build the two new courses, uh, Brian Palmer from Shoreacres, who'd been consulting, consulting with us, he had played in the Renaissance Cup at Terra Edie and, you know, stayed in touch with CJ and, and the client behind our, <laughs> not that we didn't know about. So when CJ, you know, said he was going to give up the job. Brian was standing there first in line to, to move to New Zealand and run the place. Um, so we worked with a ton of really good guys, but, you know, special shout out to the guys in Australia. I mean, literally every superintendent I've worked at worked with in Australia and I've worked with a bunch. They are just all right at the top of their game. You know, a lot of it, some of them were, like Bruce Grant, who worked with Mike Clayton for years, was an assistant for Claude Crockford. That's where it started. You know, Claude Crockford ran Royal Melbourne for like 40 or 50 years and trained up dozens of assistants who are running other golf courses. And it's just been all passed down from him. Um, so like Richard Forsyth, who's at Royal, Royal Melbourne now, and really all the guys who are superintendents around Melbourne, all of branch off that family tree somewhere or another. And, you know, they do so much without, you know, it's a pretty harsh climate. They don't, they don't have much water to work with. Um, it's a, you know, they're, they should be running all the golf courses in California because they deal with all the problems that California has and they've got the golf courses perfect all the yeah, time. Yeah. If they, if they could transport the Australian golfers and their mentality to California, it'd probably help the California courses too. <laughs> probably would you know you know i wouldn't it, it wouldn't entirely translate because like you know of course around la spend a lot more every year on every aspect of the golf course than you know if i if i told if i told somebody at royal melbourne what the dues were at bel air they would i don't know their eyes would pop out of their head probably hey uh gordy Iker, he lives in austin texas and he wants to know why it may be worth a long drive to Lubbock to play Rawls. Ooh, that is a long drive. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll start by saying to Gordy that I have not made the long drive to Lubbock in a very long time. You know, I was actually going to go on this last trip. I had to go from 
from uh, Denver to Dorna Kills in Oklahoma. And there's two ways to get there. One's kind of going through Prairie Dunes, which I did this summer on my way out. But but coming back, I was gonna I was actually gonna meet my brother in Lubbock and go play the Rawls course, which I haven't seen in more than 10 years, and then drive to Oklahoma from there. And and then the day I flew back to Denver, there were like winter storms in the mountains of New Mexico, and my brother couldn't make it. And I wound up like delaying and not going that way, which I was bummed about. You know, hopefully when we're building Dorna Kills, I'll get back and go go see how the Rawls course is holding up. Eric went there, you know, last summer on kind of a, a courtesy consulting visit to just check in on it and tell him, tell him to mow a little more grass and take down the trees. Cause we had, none of us had seen it for 10 years. Um, and things do grow up and things, you know, mowing lines change and, um, you know, so is the Rawls course worth, leaving Austin for? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, you know, for me, it was just a really different project. It's a chance to see what I can do with a totally barren piece of ground, if that interests you. And it's, you know, if you, I, I will say, if you want to, if you want to go play golf in the wind, Lubbock is a great destination for that. That's one of the, you know, we've worked in windy places and, and Lubbock is the windiest of them all. So, you know, if you if you want to learn how to play in the wind and what the wind can do to make it golf harder, go there. Yeah, I mean, if if uh, if you don't have access to private golf in Austin, I'd lived there at a time in my life where I didn't have access to private golf. It might be worth driving there because there's nothing really. There's not a lot of courses outside of a few that are worth seeing that are within two hours. I mean, it's a long drive, but you know, worse ways to spend a weekend. The other place I'd still like to stop through and see when uh, Dave Axland and Dan Proctor, when they, you know, when they started doing courses on their own, when they were still working for Bill Corr, in addition to Wild Horse, they built a course called Delaware Springs, or maybe that's not the name. It's in Delaware Springs, Texas, which is an hour or two from Austin. And I've, that's one place I've always been curious to see. You know, that will be a true minimalist golf course. That's a good recommendation right there, even though you haven't seen it. It's, uh, I, yeah, why, it's funny what you, you were describing with, uh, I was thinking about stopping there because I was going here. I was in the same thing. I was driving right. from from uh, Nebraska, Nebraska to Hutchinson, and I was going through, and I was driving through Lincoln, and I had planned to drive back to Chicago from Hutchinson, and I was going to go through Kansas City. I'm right. driving through Lincoln, and I, I'm driving through there, and I'm like, you know what? I'm as close to Wild Horse as I could get. <laughs> so, you know, I went down to Hutchinson, but then on my way back, I picked up two hours, but it was a five-hour drive. I was two hours closer sure. to Chicago. So many people were like, you should go. So Some people recommended Doric Hills, and I'm like, listen, I'm not driving five more hours to add five hours more to my trip back, you know? But... It's yes, so funny how you get out on those road trips and then all of a sudden five hours is like, oh, it's not a big deal. It's five hours, whatever. No, that's, I mean, for me, the, the, you know, getting back in the car and doing a lot of driving in 2020 because of not wanting to get on an airplane because of COVID, that's the first time I've done that 
in America in 15 or 20 years. I used to do it so much when, you know, before we got really busy and before I was a big name, I used to drive, you know, I used to drive back and forth to Philadelphia or New York from Michigan. And there was always something new to stop and see along the way. And, you know, and Bruce Hepner and Jim Urbina both saw a ton of golf courses for the first time, just riding along with me. Oh, let's stop out and look at these holes at Marion. You never been to Marion? Okay, let's go. You know, I, I, you know, and I just haven't had much time to do that the last 15 or 20 years. And, you know, I miss doing that. I'd like to be able to make time to do that with interns when I have them is just like, the year Riley Johns was an intern for me. I had some consulting work on the East Coast at like Oyster Harbors in Massachusetts, but I can't remember what we were somewhere around New York. And I said, you know, let's just go do this and like go stop in and see a few other courses while we're, while we're here. And, you know, we stopped in on two or three of the little Ross courses in Rhode Island that I hadn't seen before. And we stopped by Yale on the way back and just said, yeah, could we go out? And they're like, yeah, go play. Um, so that was a great little trip. And I, you know, I miss having time to do that, but I don't, you know, those opportunities are pretty rare now, or at least I did. It's hard to make time for them when you're working 150 days yeah. a year on the Yeah, road. I, I agree. I, uh, I drove way more this year than I have been. And I saw so many more and I got to just so many more random spots, but, uh, that's uh that'll do it for this session, I think. I uh we got it remote, so there might be more of these coming, more frequent. Who knows? Yeah, nice good to talk talking to you, to you, Tom. Thanks again.